You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I am so happy to have Kava Akbar here. Um, well, we're, we're here. We're here in your ears. Um, Kava, you are, you are joining us uh, via technology. Uh, where, where are you joining us from? Uh, I am presently in sexy, beautiful West Lafayette, Indiana. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's that's what most people's reaction. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in a nice way. That sounds lovely. <laughs> I've not been there, but now I hope to go. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, we have uh, we have strip malls, we have uh, university, we have uh, long country roads. Ooh, oh, and that you know what those long country roads. Um, might be coming in handy now for sort of getting out and about a little bit. Yeah, actually, we, me and my spouse, my spouse and I live in the middle of nowhere. And normally I hate it because I like walking to things and, uh, and we can't really walk anywhere from where we live. Um, and so normally I don't, I, I like our house very much, but I don't like the location of our house. Mm-hmm. But actually in quarantine, it's been really great because I can go on like these long, luxurious runs without any fear of ever running into anybody. Uh, it, it's been a kind of blessing. Oh, and I imagine also, um, are you someone who is also noticing a ton more birds and other nature around you? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, and my my spouse, uh, Transcendent American Poet Paige Lewis, also planted a bunch of flowers and vegetables this year. um, And that has really, really brought the birds in as well. Oh, wow. Oh, and well, hopefully... Hopefully they're leaving some for you and Paige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I don't know that they're all that concerned about that, but uh, we're we're happy for our efforts to just go uh, to feeding them. Oh well, okay. You know what? Um, before we get more into the conversation, um, I'll I'll read a, a short bio and we'll go from there. Kava Akbar's poems appear in the New Yorker. Poetry, Paris Review, Best American Poetry, The New York Times, and elsewhere. He is the author of two full-length collections, Pilgrim Bell, Grey Wolf, 2021, and Calling a Wolf a Wolf, Alice James, 2017. The recipient of a Levis Reading Prize, multiple pushcart prizes, and a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship, Kava is the founding editor of Dive Dapper, a home for interviews with major voices in contemporary poetry. Born in Tehran, Iran, he teaches at Purdue University and in the low-residency MFA programs at Randolph College and Warren Wilson. Kava, thanks so much again for being game for for doing this. Yeah, thank you, T, so much for having me and for creating such a generous generous space. Oh well, it's my it's my honor, my pleasure too. Um, well, so um, Kava, I actually so the book that I have in front of me is "Calling a Wolf a Wolf." Um, so maybe we could talk. Uh, start and hear some poems from Calling a Wolf a Wolf, um, and then and then also we'll we'll hear hopefully some from Pilgrim Bell. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Later in the program, um, so you in you know like acknowledging I think at the at the top of um, the program we we began by talking about sort of uh, 
joining each other, you know, via like, you know, from far away, we're not sitting in the radio station. Um, and but you will be you'll be a visiting writer here at the University of Michigan this fall semester. And so um, folks will be able to um, they'll be able to hear a reading and a Q&A with you and also a craft talk. Um, what what do you have up your sleeve for the craft talk? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, yeah, I know you I should, still have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should probably figure that out between now and then. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really interested right now in thinking about um, language as a technology and uh, and the things that the English language in particular was designed to do, and the English language in particular as a technology was designed to protect, and how. A lot of the writers who are doing the most interesting work to me today are doing work um, that circumvents those intentions, that undermines those intentions. Um, I think that the English language is not hyperbolically the most deadly colonial weapon ever invented. Um, oh. If you track its usage throughout history um, and what it has been deployed towards, whether it's ecological decimation or chattel slavery or the building and deployment of nuclear weapons, right? All of these have been things that have been aided and abetted by the English language in particular, mass colonization, genocide. Um, and, and so I think that it behooves us as writers in 2020 um, writers outside of the kind of narrow purview of people for whom the language was designed. Um, it behooves us to think about how to signal within the language, within our language, the limitations of the language, if that makes sense. Yes, it definitely does. Well, I mean, I think like at a certain point, you know, when you're, you're a kid, you kind of think like, uh, like a language is a concrete thing. Like it's, it is the way it is. And it's always been this way, but, mm -hmm. but we, we know it's evolving, right? Like we know, 100%. but, but like, it, it certainly feels like it needs to, how can English evolve faster? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, you just read, you read texts from a couple hundred years ago, you know, you read the British romantics or you read, um, you read Elizabethan theater and Shakespeare or whatever. And it, it becomes very quickly apparent how rapidly the English language has changed. I mean, if you think about the way that we speak to each other today, a sentence like, you know, I'll DM you on Instagram <laughs> or whatever, you know, or I'll drop a pin. I mean, like there's so much that's just part of our sort of innate, um, idiomatic, language today that would have made no sense 10 years ago, let alone a hundred, let alone a thousand, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously the language is this sort of living thing. Um, but again, it's built around, it's built upon this bedrock of, um, of a technology that, uh, was not designed with people like me and with a lot of the people that I love in this world. Um, right. it was not designed to serve us. In fact, it was designed towards quite opposite ends. And I mean, and the, those vestigial violences live sort of hidden in plain sight within the language, you know, uh, words like 
um, you know, the word ancillary comes from the Latin anquila, which means slave girl, right? The word blockbuster, you know, blockbuster was a massive aerial bomb used in World War One. You know, um, uh, robot comes from the Czech robota, meaning uh, forced labor, right? Oh. I mean, there and you know, you could keep going like this the, for the list, a, yeah, the goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The list goes on and on and on. It's endless, right? And these are all sort of just living there inside the language, right? And so I think that one of the things that poetry can do is to make us aware of the materiality of language again and make us aware of the histories of language and make us aware that language has integrity, especially as, you know, the sort of great powers that be right now are so dead set on using a raw overwhelm of meaningless language and double speak and, you know, just empty yes. argle bargle to <laughs> cudgel us into inaction. You know, there's so much language being hurled at us all the time that just doesn't mean anything. And so, uh, and so we become dull to those bits of language that do mean, you know, and I think that poetry is a really potent antidote to that. Kava, who are, cause you, you said like there are, you know, poets that you think right now and writers that are subverting this like hmm. like this this like the the language technology the present in english it's mm -hmm. you know um or are they poets and writers who are um international like not working um as like native english speakers or so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah both um you know i think that you could look to a writer like um garris abdul malakian who is uh who his new uh, his newest book just came out with Penguin, translated by Idra Novi, uh, the Persian poet who is doing wildly defamiliarist work and really, really sort of throwing the shackles off the language. But even I mean, there are a million English language writers who are doing this work, too. Um, M. Norbisi Philip is a lodestar for me. Um, her book Song and also Discourse on the Logic of Language and, you know, also her essays and interviews. I mean, every time I read her or encounter a piece of her work or a piece of her thinking, um, I feel like I'm made new and I'm made braver in terms of what I can do with language. Um, you know, writers like Solma Sharif uh, and Ilya Kaminsky and Denez Smith and, uh, and Michigan MFA graduate Franny Choi and another Michigan MFA graduate Nate Marshall both have new books out that are, I think, very much doing this work. You know, the, the musician Brian Eno has this book called um, A Year with Swollen Appendices, and he talks about um, the sound of a blues singer's voice, the crack in a blues singer's voice. Like if you're listening to an old Billie Holiday record and you hear her voice crack. Um, he calls that the sound of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. And I think about that all the time, the sound of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. I feel like as an English language artist, my medium, the English language is insufficient for just about anything that I want to record um, because of its uh, various and sundry histories conspiring against someone like me using it. Uh, the way that I want to use it. So I think that um, figuring out how to signal the limitations of the medium is is a huge part of my practice today. Oh, oh. And so, and are some of those, um, uh, um, are, are some of those uh, practices part of Pilgrim Bell or in the work that you're doing actually right now, Kava? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a very, very generous question. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, these are, these are my um, sort of inescapable obsessions right now. And, 
uh, and they govern my thinking both on the page and off the page and in my interactions with my peers and my students and my friends. And, <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very much working through these ideas on the page and in the poems of, um, Pilgrim Bell, which is my, my book that will be coming out next year. And, um, and I think I was starting to think about them too and calling a wolf a wolf, but definitely, um, it's a, it's a major, major sort of through line of the poems in Pilgrim Bell is trying to figure out again, how to come at language in a way that shows that the language is insufficient, how to sort of use language as the negative space around the silences that are really the poem, if that makes ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I know this is a, a weird thing to do, but would it be, what do you think about reading one of the Pilgrim Bell poems? Yeah, now? sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, I'm happy to hear you. You just sort of point me in a direction and I will move there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's great. I, I, I love it. Um, let me try to think of something that maybe corresponds a little bit to what I'm talking about. And, th and then we'll also, we'll definitely get back to calling a wolf a wolf as well. Sure, sure, sure. Totally. Um, yeah, because yeah, neg uh, the negative um, space and the, and the, because that's what I'm wondering too, because I feel like so much of the poems, like we have them, we're able to come to them either um, in the book itself, like to hold the book in our hands or on a screen, or if we're also so lucky, we would get to hear the poet, we'd get to hear you read it, Kava, right? Um, and so I know visually we would be able to maybe have certain things si like signaled to us yeah. in the, in the, the yeah. book itself or on the page, but then I but with you reading it to us too, then we'll, we'll, it would be a different experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, uh, and so I've just pulled up this poem here um, that maybe is <clears throat> sort of orbiting some of these ideas. Um, uh, it might be necessary to say that in Islam, um, the, the sort of precipitating catalytic miracle of the faith or uh, or one of them anyways, uh, is, uh, is literacy. Um, uh, in, uh, according to the story in Islam, um, the prophet Muhammad was fasting in a cave and, uh, was sort of just up there and the angel Gabriel came to him and said, read. Um, and the prophet Muhammad, like many <clears throat> men of his time and place and era, uh, was illiterate. Um, he was, he couldn't read. Uh, and he said so to the angel, which is a really bold thing to say to a literal angel. But, um, <laughs> but he, you know, he's like, I can't read, sorry. And, uh, the angel Gabriel, they, they sort of went back and forth like this for a minute. And then finally, um, uh, finally the prophet Muhammad is able to read and he starts transcribing what would become the first pages of the Quran. Um, and, and so the, the sort of precipitating miracle again of our faith is, <clears throat> is literacy and sort of, I guess the, a parallel way to the way that, um, virginity maybe is the precipitating miracle of Christianity, you know, the virgin birth. Um, I always felt like we won that one. Like, like, I feel like literacy is much cooler than virginity, which oh, isn't even uh, really a thing, but completely, percent. <laughs> uh, but certainly I'd think that as a writer, but anyway, I mean, you know, that's, I'm just being a goof, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't mean to put down, you know, Christian, I mean, obviously, but, uh, but anyways, um, uh, this poem is called the miracle. 
Gabriel seizing the illiterate man alone and fasting in a cave and commanding, read. The man saying, I can't. Gabriel squeezing him tighter, commanding, read. The man gasping, I don't know how. Gabriel squeezing him so tight he couldn't breathe. Squeezing out the air of protest, the air of doubt, crushing it out of his crushable human body, saying, Read in the name of your Lord who created you from a clot, and thus literacy. It wasn't until Gabriel squeezed away what was empty in him that the prophet could be filled with miracle. Imagine the emptiness in you, the vast cavities you have spent your life trying to fill, with fathers, mothers, lovers, language, drugs, money, art, praise, and imagine them gone. What's left? Whatever you aren't, whatever makes you you, a house useful not because it's floorboards or ceilings or windows, but because the empty space between them. Gabriel isn't coming for you. If he did, would you call him Jibril or Gabriel like you are here? Who is this even for? One crisis at a time, Gabriel isn't coming for you. Cheese on a cracker, a bit of salty fish. Somewhere a man is steering a robotic plane into murder. Robot from the Czech robata, meaning forced labor. Murder labor, forced. He never sees the bodies which are implied by their absence, like feathers on a paper bird. Gabriel isn't coming for you. In the absence of cloud-parting, trumpet-blaring clarity, what? More living. More money. Lazy sex. Mother, brother, Lover, you travel and bring back silk scarves, a bag of chocolates for you don't know who yet. Someone will want them. Deliver them to an empty field. You fall asleep facing the freckle on your wrist. Somewhere a woman presses a button that locks metal doors with people behind them. The locks are useful to her because there is an emptiness on the other side that holds the people's lives in place. She doesn't know the names of the people. Anonymity is an ancillary feature of the locks. Ancillary from the Latin anquila, meaning servant. An emptiness to hold all their living. You created from a clot. Gabriel isn't coming for you. You too full to eat, you too locked to door, too cruel to wonder, Gabriel isn't coming, you too loved to love, too speak to hear, too wet to drink, no, Gabriel, you too pride to weep, you too play to still, you too high to come, no, Gabriel won't be coming for you, too fear to move, you too pebble to stone, too saddle to horse, too crime to pay, Gabriel, no, not anymore. More, you too gone to save, too bloodless to martyr, too diamond to charcoal, too nation to earth, you brute, cruel pebble, Gabriel, god of man, no cheese on a cracker, mercy, mercy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Kava.
some of those uh, some of those words that we were talking about originally come back up directly in that poem. Yes. Yeah. And and I can. Yes. So, well, do you mind if we talk about it a little bit? No, please. No, I don't mind. Not no, we cannot okay. talk about it. <laughs> Sorry. Kava is now exiting the room. <laughs> yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much, T. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Good night, Ann Arbor. <laughs> um, well, because I feel like so. Well, what we were so this was a wonderful. I can see why you chose this one hmm. um, to read from like from what we were talking about before mm-hmm. you began reading. Um, because even though I can't visually see the poem, um, I could I could tell like I could when when you were naming these words mm-hmm. and and I could see that um, on, on like the layers there and then with the part um, with the two two. Uh, that that section of the poem. I wondered. Can I ask you? Was it um, like T O O and then T O, or mm-hmm. like is that? Oh, yeah, okay. two like two saddle, two horse, like T O O saddle, two horse, like T O, like the infinitive two horse, like horse being kind of verb there. Yeah. So that so that to me is the most like like the the one that I can. Um, most clearly point to where you're also showing then the the limitations of language like where you're showing some like some of the um oh like i don't i don't want to put too fine a point on this but like like not the some some kind of evil not evil but um so mm-hmm. like the breakdown of language and 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 some of its roots um, yeah yeah i'm nodding right? vigorously you can't see me but oh, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no totally i mean yeah i i'm i'm a little leery of you know putting too fine a point on anything either mostly because i don't you know i think it's a lot of kind of here be dragons zone for me but um, but I do think that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, there are only a certain number of sounds that we can make with our mouths. Right. But yes. there are, you know, a, a, an infinite spectrum. There is an infinite spectrum of emotional and cosmological and spiritual and psychological experience. Right. And, and so the fact that we're sort of like limited by these finite number of shapes that we can make with our mouth and these finite ways of pushing breath through our mouth and our tongues. Right. Um, is definitely one stricture of being a, a, a an English language artist, right? Um, is that, you know, I can't, um, you know, the, I think sometimes about how, uh, I think sometimes about the way that time exists in poems and how or time exists in art, right? Um, how the, the temporal quality of a painting is quite immediate, right? You, you, it all comes in to the eye in one moment, right? Unless you're looking at like a vast sort of mural, right? Like the, like a, a standard sort of painting in a frame or whatever, it all comes into the eye in one moment. And then certainly you can move your eye around the painting and study details, uh, more in depth, but, um, you, you can perceive the whole thing in a glance, right? Um, sculpture is not exactly that way right if you have like a a sculpture in a museum or something you can perceive an aspect of it in a glance but in order to perceive the whole thing you have to walk around it right it calls the body into the experience of time um and and i think a little bit about poems being kind of around there on the spectrum you know at the other end of that spectrum would be like a song or a movie that there's no way to experience even like a a semblance of at a glance right you could hear a note instantaneously from a song but that doesn't tell you anything about the melody or you could see a, a a still screen from a movie but 
that doesn't tell you anything about the plot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that maybe poetry exists somewhere around sculpture, right? Where you kind of have to, you kind of have to, like, you can hear a word, you can hear a sound, you can hear a line, but you kind of have to experience the throes of the thing, right? You kind of have to be in the in the movement and in the rhythm and in the in the body of the thing, right? Yes, yes, and 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 what you said earlier too, what is there and what is not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm interested in poems like this one, or, you know, there are a lot of poems in my first book that are quite noisy, um, and that get quite loud. Um, and, and I think about like the metaphysical poets like Dunn or Marvell or, or even, you know, Hopkins wasn't exactly a metaphysical poet, but he was kind of metaphysical adjacent and, (laughs) (laughs) and poets like these who would get really, would get really loud and bombastic all of a sudden. But then like, you know, I think sometimes about like how the quietest silence is the silence, like immediately following a gunshot, right? Like if, if there's like a really, really loud thunderous clap, like the, the, um, the noise that follows it becomes really silent or, or, or so like if there's an exclamation in a poem, then like the space immediately after that exclamation becomes like all the more silent by being set against the loudness. You, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I feel like, I feel like weirdly, um, uh, loudness, uh, a really bombastic or super saturated line can sometimes reveal a lot about the silences behind it or like, um, a kind of desperate urge to fill silence. Right. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. And how, could you, the, so the, the poem that we just heard from, um, Pilgrim Bell, the mm-hmm. miracle is there. Cause to me, I feel like I wouldn't say that was a noisy poem. I would say there's, it was wide ranging mm-hmm. to things that were like massive, like the basis of faith and angels. And then <laughs> to something like seeing, um, the self-awareness of like a freckle in the field, you know? Mm. you know, so like, it's a huge poem, but I would, so is that, am I right to think that Kava with like, yeah, to, to, okay. yeah, I think, I think that that's a really insightful and generous observation. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the I think that when I and here I mean like me, Kava Akbar, the human being and the sort of soul trying to understand his position in the cosmos, uh, when I try to think about things like God or faith or history, it's you know, the the mind sort of quivers that dares to even begin to contemplate these things and it it's it certainly a vertiginous feeling, right. To think about, um, eternity or to think about an angel or to think about how my living is inflected by the beliefs of ancestors who I'll never know. Um, you know, Ross Gay talks about both in his new book and, uh, and in catalog of unabashed gratitude and his new book, um, behold, uh, he talks about the people that loved us before they knew us. Um, And, uh, and I think about this, right. And the people who love me before they knew me, um, by, by keeping alive a language or by keeping alive a system of belief, right. That they believed would usher me into a better place, uh, both corporeally and otherwise. And, um, and I mean, it's a vertiginous thing, right. It, it, it makes one dizzy. It makes one, um, it immobilizes, 
one to think to really really begin to consider such things and um and i think that that sort of like rapid panning in and out you know the the bigness of a lord who created us from a clot right the the just in that in that utterance which is language directly taken from the quran um uh that utterance right uh the bigness of a lord and the smallness of a clot right the bigness of uh language and the smallness of a freckle or a bit of salty fish right um the bigness of history and the smallness of a diamond you know all, all of these things i think are um little manifestations of that vertigo right that that rapid zoom in and out yes um and it's also in it's just yeah this is it was thank you so much for choosing the miracle to read too. <laughs> um and it was it was so lovely to have the experience of sitting here in this this other place separately and closing my eyes and really just really trying to hear the words mm-hmm. um which is like what radio and podcasting is like the beauty like the gift that it can give us right? It seems like you really heard them too. It seems like you really, it seems like it really landed for you and that you, which is not a passive thing. I mean, you have to, you have to, to be a good listener in the way that you seem to have been is not a passive thing. I think that you have to sort of decide to make yourself permeable in that way. And that, and, you know, not for nothing. I think that the gift of attention is the most generous gift that you can give to a writer or to an artist because it's your most irreplenishable resource, right? Attention is a measure of time, right? And you don't get that back. I mean, you can get money back, you can get, you know, clout back, but you can't give time back. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. Uh, well, and right back at you for giving your time <laughs> to to be here today. No, it's a it's a tremendous occasion for gratitude, sincerely. It is <laughs> we'll have to you know what we're gonna we're gonna get get on the horn to Rasque, right? Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always want to get on the horn to Rasque. Um and I I love that moment in the miracle too where you say, you know, um who is this even for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, because I mean, like the whole poem, I'm calling him Gabriel, right? But that's not, you know, I'm I'm calling him that because I know that um, in the Judeo-Christian, but in the, you know, the, right. the, the Western tradition, that's what he is called, right? But in, in Arabic, it's Jibril, right? It's, yes. You know, we wouldn't say Gabriel, we would say Jibril. But I'm calling him Gabriel in this poem. And I, you know, I say, who is this even for? And then one crisis at a time, you know, <laughs> like, I'll figure that out later. Um, it's, I, I, I like kind of... That's something that I, I've been really interested in, actually, is sort of calling myself out in the poem and leaving it there. You know what I mean? I think that in um, in earlier works, I would have just corrected it, right? I would have just gone back through and, you know, maybe made it Jibdil, right? Um, but I think that sort of like leaving those marks in there kind of make the text feel a little bit more alive to me and make them feel a little bit more like living conversations as opposed to just these sort of like um polished gemstones you know what i mean yes i am i too now am nodding vigorously (laughs) (laughs) that's great yes yeah and it will and it's like that speaks directly to what you were saying is what you're you're wanting from language language right now and working with this english as a particular language to show its limitations and to show even how the mind is working because you know also until you 
you don't, the words have power and, Mm -hmm. and sometimes we are using words, um, that we don't like, we don't know where they came from or we don't Mm -hmm. know what they're next to or grown from. Right. But, um, I don't think that, I, I don't know that that excuses people from, anything but i don't think it damns them either you know but i do think we have to have a responsibility to try to figure out like choosing our words like and understanding their power Mm -hmm. um so like i feel like i'm right there with you with that um yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent and just like i mean i think it's you know the specific instance of which you speak you know i was born in iran and i was raised muslim but um, but I also moved to America when I was two and a half and, uh, I was raised in a very, very, very Christian area of the American Midwest in which, you know, it was impossible not to sort of osmotically absorb a lot of the, um, you know, Christian discourse and, uh, even just like culturally and, um, and, right. you know, and, and then even like, you know, like, uh, in, in, um, Coleman Barks's translations of Rumi, right? The great sort of Persian poet. Um, he translates, uh, he translates the prophets' names, right? He tra- like he like Jibril in Rumi becomes Gabriel, right? Um, uh, which that's not translating, right? That's just that's just making Western. You know what I mean? Like that right. you don't need to translate a name. You know what I mean? But uh, and so and so like even even the sort of like Western, even the, even the sort of totems of my own culture that I first consumed in, in my living were sort of like filtered through the prism of the Western case. Does that make sense? Yes. And even, even like, I I keep like troubling each, each individual layer that I add to this, but even saying like Western, right. Centers Europe as like the center of the globe. Right. I mean, to say Western, you're saying West of Europe, right. To say near East or the middle East or far East, right. You're saying of Europe, right. The, the implied, the implied structure, you know, after that is like Western West of, you know, Western Europe or East of, you know, near East of Western Europe. Right. And I I could say like, Oh, I, um, I understand that. And I think I understood that, but I never thought about it in the way that you just said it, which changes it. Right. Because that's the, the, if that's the point of departure, that's, that's the prism. Yeah, well, and the, I mean, the, the, the thing is, the, the, am I allowed to cuss? I was about to say the effed up thing. (laughs) No, that's fine. That's fine. I can watch myself. Can, I'll have to bleep it for the radio. (laughs) No, no, it's great. I can, I can, I can uh, be an adult about it, but (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to, I was about to say the effed up thing, but the messed up thing about it is that like, even though I know that, even though I know the thing that I just said to you, right. I still say like Western and near, because there's not really a thing that means that, you know, like I could say Anglophone, but that's not exactly right. And I could say, you know, uh, there's, there's nothing that means. And so like, the closest what what do you say like we're left without language for it exactly exactly but that's but there's so much for that i mean like i mean like what what we're talking about now is a really sort of literal you know and and uh and not um not particularly abstract example but like when you get to talking about like the different valences and kinds of love you know i use the same word to describe the thing that i feel for 
um, my niece as the thing that I feel for a student, as the thing that I feel for my spouse, as the thing that I feel for, you know, my friends, right? And it's like, these are all completely different feelings in my heart. You know what I mean? These are all completely different experiences in my mind. But, uh, but you know, we have this one sort of catch-all clumsy word and no real way to improve upon it um, with language, right? It's only through actions that we can sort of differentiate the kinds of things. You see, you see what I'm saying? And and as a poet, you know, uh, tethered to this medium, uh, you're, you're really sort of up against that. And, and again, you can't, you, I mean, the history of poetry is a history of understanding the different ways in which writers have um, signified the insufficiency of their medium or signified that they too had an emotional event to talk about that was too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so glad that these things are on, like are happening in mm-hmm. Pilgrim Bell. Like the calling a wolf a wolf um, is also a brave book of poems hmm. uh, and in a different way, it sounds like now. Yeah. Uh, a different person, mm-hmm. um, you know, but in calling a wolf, a wolf, you also did, you were pushing on this because you were using, um, the language that you grew up with. Like there's language, right? There's phrases. I feel like there's poems where, yeah. um, let me see. Do you know, do you know what I mean, Kava? Do you- yeah, totally. A poem like maybe do you speak Persian where I'm sort of blending <laughs> Farsi and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you were doing it there too, mm-hmm. you know, you were starting, you were saying these words are in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one doesn't, one doesn't choose their obsessions. Um, I, I think you just kind of, um, you know, I could write about addiction and recovery for the rest of my life and not scratch the surface of how bizarre I think it is to, um, to be alive today, uh, when it so easily could have and should have been otherwise. And when for so many people who lived exactly as I did and, you know, made the exact same decisions that I did and, you know, I didn't do anything ethically, morally better than them. And, you know, I'm still here and they're not, you know, and, and to what do I owe my being here? I mean, to what do I do with the kind of like weird survivor's guilt that governs my living now, you know, and it creates a kind of compulsion to make something of my living or to be useful with my living, um, that I don't think I would have felt that same urgency otherwise, you know, the sense that I'm on borrowed time. But again, like I could write about that forever. I could write about language, the strangeness that we, you know, uh, that we, sort of make these sounds come out of our mouths and have agreed that they correspond to different ideas and objects. And, uh, and, and by making a certain set of sounds come out of my mouth, you know, I can make my lover cry, right. If I, if I make a set of cruel sounds come out of my mouth or, you know, I can make my niece smile. If I make a a set of silly sounds come out of my mouth, you know, and, um, and these are physiological responses, right? These are, these are brainstem responses that are, um, being provoked in response to, you know, just, just sounds just like inherently meaningless sounds, right? Um, there's, there's nothing meaningful about this sound or that sound, right? It's that we have developed a system of ascribing meaning to these sounds, which I think is endlessly fascinating. I mean, I could write for the rest of my life about photosynthesis, right? Every tree. <laughs> 
I'm serious. Every tree that you see is sucking sugar from a star 93 million miles away and turning it into matter. That's nuts. That's nuts. Like it's like they're like light, light from a star is being turned into like actual sugar that weighs something. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 nuts. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. Like like I literally like I'm if you could see, you'd see. But like like it's nuts that there's like a star 93 million miles away and its light turns into like sugar that weighs something. You know what I mean? Like it's like oh the beauty. Yeah, the impossibility of I mean it's like if you yeah. put that in a sci-fi novel, it would like be like wait, what happens? Like the light turns into matter? Like what? You know, like but it's just like what happens all around us and we're just like whatever, you know. I, I mean completely. You know, there's just any direction that you look is something that could you know stoke a lifetime's worth of curiosity right and could be another miracle mm -hmm. like absolutely if, if we're just like ready to actually want to um want to try to understand it or what it totally. is well and it, and it works both i mean like there's like the sort of like majesty of a miracle like photosynthesis and then there's also these sort of like vast occasions for bewilderment all around us like the fact that um we can be so cruel to each other in oh, spite no. of our overwhelming similarities as a species right that's a that's an occasion for profound bewilderment right um, it could be almost unbelievable if it wasn't something that we were seeing like almost every day a thousand percent yeah yeah i mean like you know we know from science that you know every human being shares 99.9 .9 of our genetic code right it's like the point one percent that makes us different and the rest of it is like all sort and it's like we're so able to focus on you know that point one percent that makes us different and we kill each other over it and it's just like it's mind-boggling right like it's it's it, it doesn't even have to be genetic different it can be like you know these we make up things called nations and we get into fights over those it's like we can we, we never tire of figuring out ways to like piss ourselves off at each other completely some of the stories we decide to tell really are just so poisonous mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it comes back to language right it comes back to the fact that the language you know there's this um swedish iranian poet that i really love named athena fedexad who says that um the language the language of the criminal is a language invented to justify the crime right uh and which you know is sort of parallel to Audre Lorde saying that you can't dismantle the master's house using the mas master's tool. But I mean, again and again, it's like, this is what we have, right? This is, we've sort of chose, we, by we, I'm here meaning writers have sort of chosen to make ourselves wardens of our species' most dangerous technology, right? And, and I think that that means that it is incumbent upon us to take our materials really, really seriously, you know? Which doesn't mean that we can't have fun. It doesn't mean that there can't be delight in a poem, but I think it does mean that we have to treat our materials with real reverence. Yeah. And and what are we doing it for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The question that we constantly have to be asking ourselves, like, to what end? Because it's really easy to sort of get caught up in, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about the white obsession with personal exoneration, right? And I think that in these moments when people are really, really desperate to feel useful and to feel like they're being accountable, um, I think that there is a lot of ways in which writing that positions itself as um, being accountable is actually about 
asking for personal exoneration and asking the reader for forgiveness. Um, and, and I think that that can be really harmful. And that is another way of, um, taking a toll on a reader, right? It's another way of, um, taking from a reader and giving to a reader. Right. And I I don't think that that's what accountability looks like. Sorry, I didn't mean to. We can we can talk about cats now if you want. We're totally. Don't you, don't you think we're gonna get? Out of this? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to like yeah. sort of take us to uh, take us to a dark corner. <laughs> no, no, I, I, but I, I, you know what? It's I'm, I'm glad we're in a dark corner because there's there's darkness, and we also yeah. we need to, and it's okay to be in it together as well. As yeah, well, yeah, right? I agree. Like, I agree. It's, it's um, but I do. But I do want to talk about calling a wolf a wolf before we have to say goodbye. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Please, <laughs> and, please, and, yeah. And, and maybe so. So now, because this book, now this book, we, we've talked about. It. We've been dancing around the book. For a <laughs> sure, while. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I apologize. It, I just it, you're you're don't, compelling don't, conversationalist, and I just get excited. Oh no, no, thank you. I I too am excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I but I want us to talk about it because this is. This is you from like some time ago because the, the mm-hmm. book was published uh, with Alice James in 2017 and maybe before in the UK with Penguin. So, so these poems, like, what are you, what is it like to, to, to hold the book Calling a Wolf a Wolf in your hand now, Kava? And like, like <laughs> what's a poem you would, you would, yeah, what is it like? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that's a generous way to frame that question. I was writing to, um, I teach at Warren Wilson and I was writing a le- I, you know, handwrite my letters to my students, uh, there. And I was writing a letter to one of my students last night. Um, and, uh, and the student also has a book coming out later this year and is, I'm really excited about it. Um, and what is it, Kava? Do you want uh, to say? I don't, know that I want to say okay. because I okay. don't know. I, yeah, I apologize. I, I, I realized as I was telling the story that that was an obnoxious way to frame it because I don't know that I want to like frame okay. our relationship as them being my student publicly because they're their own poet and whatever, whatever. But they also within the sort of formal academic strictures of uh, Warren Wilson, they are my student, um, but they're also, you know, an incredibly accomplished poet in their own right. Um, yes. And I don't want to like sort of frame that relationship as a mentor mentee thing, because it's not really what it is. It feels very much more like peers, um, save the sort of like formal academic strictures that demand it be called a certain different thing. Anyway, I, I'm sorry. I'm like sort of narrating my consciousness as I think through that, but, um, but yeah, so I, maybe I'd rather not say that, but, um, but just to say, like I was talking, um, with a friend, maybe that's a better way to say it. Um, I was writing a letter to a friend recently and last night and I, they asked what it was like to have what I felt like when my first book came out. And I remember I was writing to them, um, about this and, uh, and it was this deeply unsexy thing where I slept with a copy of my book by my pillow for the first several weeks that I got it, you know, and I read it cover to cover again and again. And I just, I couldn't believe that it was a real thing. Like I, and I know that that's like a really, really sort of uncool thing to admit. Right. But, it's lovely. <laughs> I just couldn't believe that it was real. And I remember like opening that first box of books from Alice James. Um, and I mean, I, I became less afraid to die. You know what I mean? Like I, uh... and I know that that sounds like intense or whatever, but like, 
it was this thing where no matter how badly I messed up from that point forward, no matter how badly I neglected my recovery or neglected my art, um, neglected my writing, uh, no one would be able to take that away from me. You know what I mean? Not even myself, you know, and I'm, I have historically been pretty good at taking stuff away from myself. Um, and, uh, and I didn't in that instance. Um, so, uh, and so I became a little bit less afraid to die. I will say that, you know, most of those poems were written in the throes of early recovery. Um, well before, I mean, it was published in 2017, but obviously most of the poems were written well before the book was actually published. Um, and so, uh, and so the poems are a sort of useful portal for me, for a person that I was, you know, I think that, um, humans broadly are really bad at remembering pain with any sort of acuity, right? Like we can remember that we were in pain, but it's hard to be like, like I, I shattered my pelvis, um, nine years ago in a bicycle accident. And, uh, like I can remember that I was in pain when it happened, but I can't like, suddenly imagine the actual pain itself and like feel that again. Right. I, I mean, if I could, I'd be doubled over right now, you know, um, yes. uh, it's a protection, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it, and like evolutionarily speaking, I mean, if we could remember with any acuity or fidelity, right. The pain of getting our leg crushed by a mammoth or whatever, we would never hunt. You know what I mean? We'd never go back out and hunt again. Right. And so MCA. And so like, and so like, it makes sense that we would protect. And so like we invented, you know, this thing called trauma, which is like a sort of, um, emotional psychological aversion to potentially dangerous experiences that don't, that doesn't reinscribe the actual sensation of physical pain. But, you know, obviously we now know that trauma has its own sort of, it's sort of a dirty technology, right? And there's a lot of things that it doesn't do very well. Um, but anyways, this to say, um, yeah, because memory changes things too, you know, yeah. like each time. Yeah. So things, yeah, it's hundred percent. Totally. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, I read that book and I'm like, oh, wow. You know, it was, it was bad. You know, it was, that was rough, you know, because, you know, I'm being, I'm, you know, seven years sober today. And, um, and so that's, that's that is that is wonderful. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done, which, um, which doesn't do credit to how hard it has been because I've lived a relatively charmed life. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, relative, you know, relative to getting sober, you know, everything else has been fine, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so this just to say, right. I hold it and it's like, it's a useful portal. And it's a, and it's in, in that way, it's also really useful against me being like, oh, you know, well, it's probably better now, you know, like it's, I could probably, you know, handle whatever, whatever now, you know, like I was just immature then I could probably go back out, you know, because it wasn't that bad, you know, like my, my memory tells me these things because my disease is still sort of in the back of my brain, you know, doing push ups just waiting for me to slip up and, you know, it hasn't gotten any weaker. I've just gotten better at, you know, um, interventions against it. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it keeps me, it keeps me honest in that way. And it reminds me of what it was like because my brain is pretty good at, um, at helping me forget just how bad it was, you know? Um, it's also just kind of, you know, charming to read, you know, what, you know, what little early and mid twenties year old Kaveh was sort of thinking about like in terms of poetry and, you know, what he was fascinated by. And, you know, obviously I've, 
changed a lot as a human being and I've changed a lot as a poet in the interim. And, um, and I've changed, I mean, politically I've changed, I've, um, spiritually I've changed and grown. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of like this, it's a, it's a timestamp, right? It's a, it's a portal into you, you were talking about how these episodes sort of feel like timestamps to you, right. Of, um, you know, this is what, uh, Naomi, she have Nye was thinking in 2019 or whatever, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and I, and I think that it feels very much like that for me. Like, this is what the person that I was, was thinking then, right. It gets me closer to that than my actual memory gets me. And, and you, and you read it, you said Kava cover to cover. <laughs> was, was it something like, um, did it feel different then too? Yeah. Um, or maybe that's too, I don't, I don't no, 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 no. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's this fickle technology memory. I mean, I think that if I'm being very honest, you know, I think that the, the, because by the time a poem actually makes it into like a book of poems that is published, right. It means that I've seen it and worked over it a billion trillion gajillion times. Right. And so it's sort of stopped being, you know, um, you know, at least in those moments, right. Like when I first got it, um, it stopped being the, po because now, you know, I, I revisit, re I revisit that book and those poems much, much, much less frequently, you know, like, um, you know, I revisit, I revisit them basically, um, when I, when I visit other people who have read it and want to talk about it, you know, I, it's not something that I spend a lot of time with in my own time. And so, um, and so, but right when it was fresh, you know, I just spent a lot of time with those poems. So I think that I was still sort of thinking maybe editorially or critically about the poems and being like, yeah, that was a good decision to cut that stanza or da, 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 da. You know, it wasn't so much the more zoomed out way that I can think about them today. It was a little bit more granular, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Um, well, could I, could I ask you to read one from totally. calling a wolf a wolf? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll read, do you speak Persian? Um, since we kind of oh. mentioned that earlier. Oh, that would be lovely. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is called, Do You Speak Persian? Some days we can see Venus in mid-afternoon. Then at night, stars separated by billions of miles, light traveling years to die in the back of an eye. Is there a vocabulary for this? One to make dailiness amplify and not diminish wonder? I have been so careless with the words I already have. I don't remember how to say home in my first language or lonely or light. I remember only I miss you and good night. How is school going? Are you still drinking? For so long, every step I've taken has been from one tongue to another. To order the world. I need. You need. He, she, it needs. The rest left to a hungry jackal in the back of my brain. 
Right now our moon looks like a pale cabbage rose. The Lambert Tengshode. We are forever folding into the night. Shabachir. Thank you, Kava. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was... Oh, I've, I've loved talking with you today. Thank you so Yeah, much. it's been really lucky. It's been really lucky. Thank you for being such a good reader and thinker and listener and question asker and talker yourself. Now look, wait, I'm the one that's... <laughs> I, I thank you, okay? <laughs> this is, this is oh. good. It's an occasion for gratitude. <laughs> but, Kava, before we go, though... um. I did want to talk just about a couple things, and I think it might be related. Because <laughs> sure. um, I wanted to ask you, like, right now, like, where you're finding joy. Yeah, where am I finding joy? Um, the thing that immediately leapt to mind was teaching. Uh, the semester has just started back up. Um, yes, and yes. I, I really, really, really love my students. And I know that everyone says that they love their students, but I really love my students. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just I just get so much life out of spending time in their poems and in their conversations and in their thinkings. And um, I was on this sort of, um, it's, it's not called sabbatical. I, I'm, I'm really dumb at talking about like university stuff. I always, I don't really know the like language, right? It's, it's not a sabbatical. It's like, but it, I don't know what the difference between what I was on and what a sabbatical is, is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was basically like I didn't teach, uh, last semester. Um, uh, and, and I was over it like two weeks into the semester. I was like, uh, like I was like, I have a routine for writing while I teach, you know what I mean? Like I, I've done that my whole life and last semester was the first, I mean my whole adult life and last semester was the first semester since I've been teaching at the university level that I wasn't teaching. And I just, I, I, like I was two weeks into the semester and I was like, well, this sucks. Like I was ready to be, you know, teaching again. And, um, and so I had to, I mean, I basically haven't taught since, uh, since like December twenty. What, how does math work? December 2018, is that right? Yeah, because I didn't teach spring semester 2019. And yeah, wait, no, that's not wait, math. No, no, yeah. Wait, no, yeah, whatever, not. whatever. Someone, <laughs> someone listening can do the math, but I didn't teach last spring semester. And so, uh, <laughs> um, and so I'm just, I'm really, really, really happy to be back in teaching. And it just also sort of takes me out of my own head, which is, kind of just constantly reprocessing experience over and over again, as opposed to, um, you know, I've just sort of been in this house for however many months quarantine's been going on. And so it's hard to create new experience. And so I've just been like endlessly reprocessing old experience, which is, you know, a terrible thing for me. And so, um, I like spending time in their heads and not my own. Oh, and well, that's, that, Kava, that, that is lovely. And, um, <laughs> and I believe you and, because yeah. um, <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but you know what? You also have a new cat. Yeah. 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 We, um, we took in a foster a few months ago, um, who was super sick and needed all this medicine and stuff. And then, you know, naturally and inevitably, uh, we became, you know, foster failures where we just, instead of like being like, okay, time for you to go join your forever family. We just became that forever family. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it was, as soon as we took him in to foster him, everyone was like, nah, you're going to keep him. And I was like, no, 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 we're really going to be good. You know, and then everyone was right. 
yeah, I feel like even my spouse knew, like even Paige knew, uh, and was just sort of like letting me believe that I was doing it. Cause we already have two cats, you know, and, and we don't have like a huge space. And so, um, but you know, now we have three, I feel like three is, what do you think? I feel like three is like the cutoff for <laughs> like when, when you get a fourth one, then you're like, people are like, Oh, you know, you have four. That's, that's good. You know? And they start to get a little worried. I feel like three is like, right. That cutoff where people are still like, okay, like, you know, there are two of you that's one and a half cats per person that, that maybe makes sense you know but if we if we were to get one more people would be like oh you're like the the cat family you know what i mean <laughs> the cat family kava i've loved this <laughs> yeah this has been really lucky thank you so much t thank you so much thank you kava today on living writers kava akbar i'm t hetzel until next time Maybe I'm in love with you. Thank you for listening to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Charlie Brigham and I'm going to be your host today. Coming on in about 10 minutes are going to be my four panelists, Andy Laidlaw, Adam Bressler, Jared Greenspan, and Amir Bechtis. We're going to be talking about some NFL football and some NBA basketball. So settle in and enjoy the next half hour. Obviously, this past weekend was NFL opening weekend. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about on this topic, really, because um, lots of people I know, including myself, are big fantasy football fans. And I saw the topic of conversation come up. Um, if you missed it, Saquon Barkley this week against the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, was held to six rushing yards. Saquon usually taken, or in a lot of leagues, taken as the second pick in his fantasy draft. Obviously, a stud last year. Everybody was looking for production out of him this year, too. But after an opening performance of only six yards, it kind of got some people thinking. I just kind of want to throw my two cents out there. So personally, I don't think it's that big of a worry. You know, the Giants offensive line is god awful. Like they are nothing special, nothing. Nobody really expects anything out of them. So this performance against a very, very good Pittsburgh Steelers defense should be expected. Obviously, they are a professional football team. They should be able to put forth some kind of effort. But Saquon getting pounded in the backfield like that, I think that's just a combination of a testament to how good the Steelers defense is. And also, the Giants need to kind of look in the mirror and realize, oh snap, like that's just how bad our offensive line is. A couple more highlights from the weekend. Give you a quick breakdown of all the games in case you missed any of them. The Chiefs beat the Texans. 34-20, the Bills 